You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI podcast, your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tax Smart REI podcast. Today we are joined by JC Costello and James Ang to discuss the state of the multifamily market. So as everybody knows, a lot of crazy things have been going on over the last year or so with interest rates and the market has just been going crazy. So we're going to dive into all that in just one second. So JC, James, thank you so much for joining us today. Would you be able to give a brief introduction to your background and how you how you got involved in real estate? Maybe we'll just kick it off with JC and then we'll go uh, with James next. Yeah. Well, Thomas and, and Brandon, thanks a lot for having us on. I'm always excited to talk with you guys. I love, love, love your podcast and all the great social media content you guys put out. Um, I've been in the multifamily business for the past 15 plus years. Um, owner operator who has, you know, purchased and renovated and developed and property managed large scale multifamily properties for a very long time and uh, have done all of my business in this great state of Texas. This is James Zhang. You know, my background actually started at GE Capital, spent 10 years there as a loan underwriter across all property types. And as an underwriter, you look not only at the property, you look at the financial statements of the borrower. And I realized these guys who owned real estate made a ton more money than doctors, lawyers, attorneys, everybody that your parents told you to be. So in 2015, I started investing in multifamily and at the same time started originating loans and have done probably about a billion, billion and a half in multifamily loans over the last five, six, seven years and um, invested in a lot of properties here in Texas as well. Awesome. It's awesome. So you guys definitely know the multifamily world for sure. Right now, a lot of crazy things have been going on over the last year or two. Uh, would you kind of be able to give us a quick overview of what's going on in the multifamily market today? Well, James, I'll let James kick it off because uh, he definitely has a lot more visibility on the loan space with a lot of different you know transactions that are happening out there. So James, kick it off and I'll, I'll jump in as I need to. Yeah, I mean, on the state of the market, I think, you know, there was a LinkedIn post from a passive investor recently. And he said, you know, pre 2021, I didn't even know what loan was on the property. But now 2023, you definitely know what type of loan is on the property. Because if you put on a floating rate, or you put on a bridge loan, you are getting capital called today. And so in terms of the state of the market, I mean, really, I can take you back sort of when I started originating loans in 2015, pretty much everyone did just like a Fannie Freddie fixed rate loan that was 10 years or seven years fixed. And then, you know, you paid it off, you know, maybe five or six years into the deal or even earlier. And you had a little bit of a penalty, but you were selling at a gain. And sort of fast forward to COVID 2020, the market sort of slowed down. And then in 21, this is where the market just completely changed from a market of Fannie and Freddie based on in-place income, it moved to a bridge market. And what that meant was that people were looking at pro forma NOI, not in-place income. And then the interest rates were artificially low because the Fed had kept the federal funds essentially at zero. 
So when you started, your interest rate might have been three, three and a quarter percent. And then, you know, it was SOFR plus that 3%. SOFR was zero. So your starting interest rate was 3.25. Now, federal funds has moved up to close to 5%, five and a half now. And so five and a half plus 325, you're, you know, close to 9%. And so a lot of people, they might have bought interest rate caps, but a majority of the people did not factor that into their pro forma. And so what we're seeing is people bought deals. So we have an example of a deal here in Dallas and someone bought it essentially for about $42, $43 million. And the loan that they took out in 2021 was 36 million. And the price of the property now is under contract for 35 million. And so if you do the math, I mean, it's hard to do math on a podcast, but if your loan amounts 36 and you're selling for 35, you're losing money. A lot of good, (laughs) not good. And so this is really the beginning of, you know, when I started in 2015, everyone's like, this is the top of the market. And I was like, "Ah, I'll just make small bets in 2015, 2016, 2017. But 2021 was the top of the market. (laughs) And so that's, there will definitely be another run. But right now, the next 12 months is going to be pretty painful for a lot of people because in 2021, a lot of people did three-year bridge loans. Some people did two-year bridge loans. And so all the two-year bridge loans are coming due right now. And those people cannot extend and they cannot refi. So this is just the beginning. In the next 12 months, you're going to see a lot more people have to sell because they cannot refi and they cannot do a capital call. They can do a capital call, but the money's not there. So I've got a handful of questions before (laughs) JC jumps in. I mean, you guys are very, very smart people. We have sophisticated people and also unsophisticated people who are kind of getting into the space, uh, listening to this podcast. So for people that are new, explain what a bridge loan is and what a rate cap is, and then shed some light on why did 2021 turn into a bridge market? Like what you mentioned that. So explain what that means. When you do a Fannie Freddie loan, the agencies essentially look at your in-place income and say, all right, let's say your NOI is 125,000 a year. Okay. So that's your revenue minus expense is 125,000. They will give you a loan based on a debt service of 100,000. Does that make sense? They're saying, all right, your property throws off 125 and then I'm going to give you a loan for 100,000 and you can support it based off the in-place cash flow. So that's how all the loans were done in 15, 16, 17, 18 on stabilized properties. And then you know, you could always do a bridge loan. A bridge loan was based off, okay, your property is only throwing off 50,000, but you're going to get it to 125,000 over the next three years. So it was based on pro forma. So people usually did that on, you know, distressed properties where it was, you know, 50% occupied or something. Pretty significant value add. Huge value add. NOI is going to double essentially um, over the next couple of years. So if you go back, even though it seems like forever, during COVID, the interest rate at your savings account was zero. And the same problem that individual investors have in that they are searching for yield, institutional investors were searching for yield. So if they put money in a 10-year treasury, they got 1% in 2020, 2021. And so what they were doing was saying, okay, where can we invest to get 4% or 5% on our money? And 
you know, real estate guys are smart and they've created these huge debt funds where essentially they said, look, you can loan against multifamily and you get 4%, which was a huge increase compared to where it was. So the appetite for these bridge lenders was huge. And so they started loaning on everything. And so Fannie and Freddie, let's say they're looking at that 125 debt service coverage and you're buying a property for $20 million. So let's use a $20 million example. Fannie and Freddie, they come back and say, we can give you $10 million. The bridge lender comes in and says, we can give you $16 million. Which one do you take? Yeah. I mean, now- Most people took is, the 16. <laughs> well, well, of course. My question though is, is it just because people either didn't have access to that additional capital or is it because they didn't want to give up more equity in the deal? But, well, there was a lot of reasons that, you know, from an owner's perspective, I can tell you what, where the story really took a wrong turn. And I, and I really felt this way as I was hearing the brokers out there talking to us. It's like, it got to the point where it was such a competitive environment. James hit the nail on the head, right? So you talk about bridge lending and there's some traditionally useful benefits for bridge lending. That would be, you know, deals that are not stabilized, deals that are under distress, or also on my side would be sort of deals that are in development or brand new assets that are under lease up where you know you can't get a stabilized loan, a long-term debt, a loan on the property. But what ended up happening is these, these syndicators were, were, were really desperate to get deals done. And the brokers that were selling these deals were basically saying to everybody else, they were saying, look, if you don't put bridge debt on this deal, which is a stabilized deal, let's say a 1980s asset, you're not going to get it because there's people that are putting bridge debt on this stuff. And so they can outbid you by a bunch of money. And if you're going to come in with a Freddie Mac traditional loan, you're going to get, you know, 1.25 debt service coverage ratio limitation. You're going to get 60 to 65% leverage. How are you going to compete with a guy that's coming in with a bridge debt loan who's getting 85% leverage in some cases plus rehab costs? How are you going to compete with that? Well, you don't, you lose the deal. And so what it ended up becoming is the brokers were saying, Hey, if you want to play in this market right now and say in 2021, you're doing bridge debt or you ain't buying deals. So you're in a situation where unless you're willing to be patient and be disciplined, you're going to be getting over your skis because that's the only way to do deals. And so the the idea with bridge debt from, from a more macro perspective, it's more aggressive lending. It's based on that pro forma. So the idea is rehab the property, get it to pro forma. So you have to buy deep value add properties, but it's also meant to be pretty short term, right? I mean, you mentioned two, three year bridge debt. So that right there exposes you to interest rate changes. Right. So Fannie and Freddie, when they quote deals, they essentially give you an interest rate, right? So it might be four and a half, five percent, and it'll be fixed for the term. Most of the terms are five, seven, or 10 years, or even 12 years is what most people take. So that's, you, you know, your payment for the entire period. On the bridge loans, it is typically quoted as a spread over SOFR. So SOFR is an index that pretty much tracks the federal funds rate. And it's SOFR plus, let's just use 3% to make the math easy. And so as every month, that interest rate resets. And so one of your questions before was on rate caps. So a lot of people, when they bought these deals in 2021, the forward curve for SOFR was essentially flat. Like it was you know, zero and it just went out forever. And so you could have bought a rate cap essentially for $25,000. And, you know, it could have been a $20 million loan, 
but it was $25,000 and you could have capped your SOFR at 1% or 75 basis points. But then everyone's looking at the curve and saying, okay, why am I throwing like $50,000 in the trash or $25,000 in the trash for this rate cap? Um, because it's not forecasted to go up because the Fed kept saying, oh, we're not going to bring it up. But, you know, we got to work through COVID, all this type of stuff. Like you couldn't leave your house, right? So people were just like, yeah, why is this interest rate going to go up? Well, hold on. So they, on yeah. the rate cap, how how long does a rate cap run? Is it does it run the the term of the loan? So most so at the beginning, they started in 2021. Majority of the uh, lenders wanted you to buy it for the initial term of the loan. Okay, and so that was anywhere from two to three years. Okay. But then in 2022, these rate caps started getting more and more expensive because the Fed started raising in 2022, you know, 75, 75, sort of at the beginning of 2022. And so they started getting more expensive. So people started shortening their rate cap window. And so instead of buying three years, they bought two years. And then instead of two years, they bought one year. And then some lenders just said, okay, it's on you to figure it out. You don't have to buy anything if you don't want to buy it. And so that's where we're going to see. So majority of people in 2021 bought three-year rate caps. Majority of the people in 2022 bought two-year rate caps. So that's why 2024 is going to be a very interesting time because pretty much everyone's going to have to buy a rate cap on floating rate if they cannot refinance out of that bridge into a Fannie loan. And so if you go back to, let's say it's a $20 million deal and Fannie Mae was giving you $10 million, but then you took the bridge at 16. Now it's time to refi. And so you, you, hopefully you've improved your NOI, you've improved the performance of the property, and now you go to refi and they say, Fannie and Freddie can give you 11 million. Right. Your bridge debt was on the pro forma that you on the finally pro got to. So, so your refi yeah. opportunities are slim, right? Well, if you've improved the NOI, so probably one out of, let's say 20 bridge loans that we look at can refi. Wow. And without new cash into the deal. But majority of the deals, the way it looks is the bridge loan is 16 million. We size it up. The Fannie and Freddie loan is, is getting to like, let's say 12 million. So now you go back to your investors and you say, okay, guys, we originally put down 4 million. You remember we bought the deal for 20 million and we got $16 million loan. So we put 4 million down. Now we need another 4 million to refi. And pretty much the investors are going to look at you like you're crazy. Like we're not putting another four million into this deal, yeah. and so what we're having to do is that person's going to have to make a decision. They're going to have to either buy a rate cap for another year to just sort of kick the can down the road, and that's only if they can get an extension on their bridge loan. And how much do those rate caps go on today? Rate caps for one year. It all depends on the strike that you cap. So for at, um, but people can look it up. Just go, just type in interest rate cap calculator but it's anywhere from like 2 to 3% of the loan typically for one year right now. So it's pretty expensive. Like several hundreds of thousands of dollars. Or millions. Oh, wow. Yeah. Did I just do that math wrong? <laughs> well, it depends on your loan amount. It depends on yeah. your loan amount. So most, so most of the bridge loans that were floating rate that were done were probably over $10 million, majority of them. And wow. so most of these properties are large properties. Got it. Um, yeah. So they're looking yeah. at six, nine, six to 900,000 or so. Wow, man. That's... And that's for one year, right? Yeah. So that that only caps your interest rate, but you're still paying the debt service. 
right? So right. it's not like, yeah, so you're having to come up with this money sort of outside. Well, of yeah, the so where does that million dollars come from? So it's either going to come from the general partners. So the guys who signed on the loan put the deal together, or it's going to be a capital call to the LPs. And if, then they got to do it all again 12 months from now. Well, people are hoping that the rates will come down, right? So if SOFR comes back down, so SOFR is at five and a half now. If it comes back down, then you just have your normal spread of 3% plus SOFR, and then you're fine. You don't even need the rate cap, mm. right? But I think you hit on a great point, Brandon, because that is exactly the fear of why LPs feel like they're putting good money into bad because right. they're going, well, hey, what happens in 12 months? And the and the GPs go, well, we hope the rates come down. It's like, well, you're asking me to cough up you know, another 50% of my investment for some hope that the rates right. come down, but the Federal Reserve is meanwhile messaging that rates could stay sticky at where they're at for a little bit longer. So you know, therein lies the huge issue with trying to raise money in that situation. Interesting. So like who, who got into this mess? Like what's the typical profile? Because I feel like, you know, I, and, and I don't want to, I know that there's genuinely bad actors in every space, but you know, we, we work with a lot of sponsors and I would say those sponsors like can run circles around me from a financial perspective. I mean, these are like sophisticated people. Like, how did we even get here? I mean, it goes back to the to the game that JC was talking about, right? So in 2021, beginning of 2021, and you know, let's say a, a deal comes on the market and you can qualify for a 10 million dollar loan, like we were talking about. All right, let's use easier numbers because let's say a six million dollar loan. And the broker comes out and says it's $10 million. Okay, great. $10 million. I got a 60% loan on Fannie and Freddie. Then it goes call for offers. 40 people bid on that deal. (laughs) So now all of a sudden it goes to $12 million, right? The price. And then it goes best and final. It goes to 14 million. 14 million. And my loan is the same, right? Because Fannie and Freddie, the way they look at loans is, is still the same. It goes to 14 million. Then best and final, the best and final, the best and final, it goes to 17 million. And so the 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 Fannie and Freddie still, loan is still, still buying with bridge debt where we're supposed to Well, so Fannie and Freddie is saying, look, we're still at six million because yeah. nothing's changed. Like it's only been a month, nothing's changed on the property. The bridge lender essentially has said, okay, it's at 16 million. I'm gonna give you 80% of that. So yeah. that's like 13 million. And then you want to do a million in rehab, we'll throw that on top. So now all of a sudden your loan is 14 million. So for the syndicator out there, the equity check was the same whether they bought it for 10 million or 16 million. The equity well, amount check was the same. The problem was that their basis was increasing significantly way faster than I think the other thing that happens too is if you if you talk to a lot of these brokers, like you know, in every market, like say, for example, in Dallas Fort Worth, there's probably like eight different brokers that are like moving, you know. 75 plus percent of the of the inventory that's happening. So when you go out there and you actually talk to the feet on the street and you you get the real inside scoop on what's happening, what they'll tell you is this. Every year there's new entrants to the market that are these big I would say new new style of syndicators that are moving huge volume and they they come in and they sort of plant a flag and they go, "Look, we're going to just buy in this market and we're going to set the price, we're going to set the terms." We're going to make our stand. We're going to build a spot here in this market. And so what they end up doing is they pay through the nose to do it. 
because the only way that they're going to get deals done is if they're willing to stretch in every single way that they can to outbid everybody else. Now, it's kind of like musical chairs because there's been plenty of other major syndicators that have come in and done these volume-based plays over the last decade plus, and they've managed to sort of come in and get out in a two to three year to five year cycle and double people's money. So it kept working. And so all these guys that were coming behind them go, look at the model is there. We see the model. All these guys are crushing it. Let's go into Dallas and let's be the next, you know, name your big, well-known, you know, syndication, you know, conglomerate, right? So the last guys that came in, if you think about 2021, 2022, I'm not going to drop any names, but we, James and I could tell you exactly with a handful of, of, you know, major volume-based syndicators that were very new to the market and also probably very new to, you know, multifamily in general, they came in and they just crushed it. They set the market and all the brokers said, look, these are the two or three guys that are buying everything, mm-hmm. right? The problem with the guys that did in 2021 and 2022 is that the music stopped and these are the guys left with all this bridge debt, all these floating rate loans, all these properties that they overpaid for that are worth you know 25% less than they paid for them. And there is no getting out. I mean, they're taking a haircut and there is only a matter of time before that happens. We've already seen some of the, if you, if you go out there and Google, you know, some of these things are already out there in the, in the world and the news is already out there and what's happening, but there's a lot more to it than you would even hear about. And you would only know that if you were in these markets where so many huge deals and big players are playing and that's what's going on right now. And so when James talks about 2024, there is a lot of people right now that are holding on by a thread and going, look, it's kind of like hoping for like that last minute football touchdown to the end zone in the last like four seconds of the game. And that's where it's coming down to for some of these guys that need, you know, a miracle ending because it's just not looking good right now in any other shape, form or fashion. Right. Hell Mary, JC. Hell Mary. <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, I've been following the stories that uh, the real deal uh, has been sure. putting out. So they're a um, real estate news organization magazine, and they've got pretty good coverage over, I presume, some of the sponsors that you're talking about uh, and just like how they're kind of collapsing as we speak. So it's kind of interesting to learn about. But I guess one question that I have too is if you're in the business of lending, I mean, bridge debt is more aggressive. Like, why didn't the lenders press pause on this? Like, it just seems like everybody got bridge loans and that this is just like almost like a mirroring 2008, essentially, or 2007, 2008 leading up to the crash. Why didn't the lenders catch on to this? (laughs) Okay, so this is what happens in 2021. And it's all about liquidity. Okay. So if I go out to the market as a mortgage broker and I take a deal out, and I say, look, I need $15 million on this loan. First guy comes in, says I can do 14. Second guy comes in, 14 and a half. Third guy, 15. Fourth guy, 15 and a half. Then the next guy goes to 16. Then 16 Not and a half. Can I get a lower spread? Of course you can. Can I go with less qualifications of a borrower? Of course you can. Well, this guy's a foreclosure. Oh, that's not a problem. Does he? Oh, he has a bankruptcy. Oh, that's not a problem. They, they just got, they have money to deploy and they were just so trying to deploy this. It's a race to the bottom. Got it. So when you look at this stuff and you're like, how does somebody who has very limited experience get $250 million worth of loans for 3,000 units in Houston, Texas? That's why. Hmm. 
is because there's so much liquidity in the market and it's almost like a pendulum. It does. It's not like where it's gradual. It just swings all the way where there's so much liquidity in the market. And then all of a sudden you look up like the last 12 months and you can't find a dime anywhere. Huh. Right. The liquidity has gone. Banks are gone. All, all the money that was going to the bridge lenders. So the, it's funny because the, the debt funds, the money was actually coming from banks. So banks actually give these guys like a line of credit to some extent and say, look, go out and originate a billion dollars worth of money, billion dollars worth of loans, then we'll securitize it. And it's just like a machine that just keeps going. But then as soon as one bank pulls back and says, actually, uh, we, those loans use, uh, originated, we can't securitize them. You're stuck, right? Something gets caught in the machine. And this was summer of 22. Summer of 22, the machine got caught. People just started saying, we can't do this anymore. People aren't buying the paper. Hmm. So when you originate these loans, eventually you sell it to investors, all these loans. And as soon as the investor says, I got enough, I don't want any more, I'm full. Then all the debt funds back up. So all of a sudden you went from 20 guys trying to bid on deals to five, to two, to one. So that's why you don't see any bridge loans done sort of back half of 22 was because the machine stopped. And guess who came back in? Fannie and Freddie. And they said, we can give you 60% leverage. But now you can't refi. So Well, you can't refi, but then it also is on acquisitions. So pretty much the entire mix of what we've done in the first half of this year has been Fannie and Freddie. Because they've been there and their rates are at you know, five and a half to six percent versus nine or ten percent today. What are the options? Uh, we're we're in twenty twenty four. I'm sponsoring all these deals. I'm I'm realizing I'm up the creek. What do I do? Do you foresee any like loan modifications in mass happening, or is this really like I got a capital call or give it back to the bank? So right now it is pretty early, and so most of these debt funds and lenders they've got a few issues. So the only people who really have issues are guys who did two-year loans in 2021. The issues are coming next year, right? So right now, they are not backed up. Right now, when we go back to these lenders, they're essentially saying, pay me off. I'm not extending you because to hit your extension. So a lot of these loans had built-in extensions, but they were based on essentially a 125 debt service coverage, very similar ratios to Fannie and Freddie. And they call it a debt yield hurdle, but nobody's there. Nobody's there. The NOI is not there, or you would just go refi. So the extension, they don't qualify. And so it's completely at the lender's discretion to say, nope, we're not extending you, pay me off. So it's almost like a game of chicken as you get closer and closer to that maturity date. And so a lot of people probably back half of this year and definitely in 24 is when those maturities are going to come up. And so what we're seeing is people are listing deals right now. Like, I mean, compared to two months ago, I mean, I probably get 30 listings a day now compared to two months ago, I got one listing a month. Hmm. So the amount of people who are going to the exits to take their deal out, the only problem is that that price that the deal comes in at might not be enough for you to break even or even pay off your loan. And so that's when you're saying, all right, now what I do, because I can't sell it for a profit 
or do I just try to kick the can for another year? So a lot of people are going to be kicking the can. Hmm. Interesting. JC, what were the, I don't know if it's fair to use the term experienced sponsors, but I think you kind of know what I mean. The sponsors that have been around for a while, what were they doing in 2021 and 2022? You know, it's, it's so interesting. And I actually read a LinkedIn article where I, I really enjoyed a very wise person's perspective on exactly this question. And what they said was basically a lot of the syndicators that had been doing this for a long time and had even like myself have been through the, the great recession, right? As a multifamily owner. And it's funny because the financing piece is what really crushed a lot of people during the great financial recession, but it had a different little twist to it. So, but it was at the end of the day, it was still financing. And if you look at this time, the big problem is the financing piece. So, you know, guys like me and guys that, you know, look, we're not big, huge volume syndicators, right? We're not doing, you know, billions of dollars a year in purchases, but, you know, we have a sizable portfolio that we've held for a long time. So we actually never really stopped our strategy, which was when we found a deal that was too good to pass up, we bought it. We never had a whole lot of luck in the last couple of years because there just wasn't stuff that we could compete with. But, you know, we were always able to pick up here and there off market deals. We actually, over the last, you know, several years started switching over, which we actually, I actually also saw a lot of the smart, you know, more experienced indicators doing is they were switching away from a lot of the older stuff, a lot of the C class, you know, 1980s, 1970s, 60s construction deals. They were selling off that stuff and either buying brand new or developing uh, their own stuff brand new because the numbers made so much more sense to do that. And so that's what we've been doing. Is we've shifted away from, you know, a lot of the older value add stuff, which we feel like has a lot more risk than we we want to have these days, and going into the, the the newer stuff where we feel like we've got a lot more uh, runway to to really have a much more long term, uh, you know, focused mindset. But you know, a lot of the guys that have been through this, they kind of saw it coming, and I think that a lot of people went, especially like for from my perspective, when I started hearing brokers talking about, you know, hey, look, unless you're going to do a bridge loan. And you're going to do this, this and that you ain't getting touching a deal. That's when, you know, I was like, man, not only should we not be buying, but actually it's time to sell anything that we don't want to keep for the next 10 years. And that's actually another thing that we started to do was offload a lot of our older stuff, which we we're able to sell for, you know, uh, amazing uh, returns. We then 1031 exchanged, which by the way, we're one of the few syndication companies that does it. We've 1031 exchanged every single deal we've ever bought, except for one. And we've syndicated and 1031 exchange into a, uh, a newer asset. So just, you know, kick that tax, uh, you know, liability can down the road and then keep it going. So, um, you know, I think again, staying long-term focused in, in any market, whether it's an up market, a down market or a sideways market, I think is the best way to protect your investors capital and it set yourself up for long-term success because, you know, I never got into real estate because I wanted to make instant millions. I got into real estate because I wanted to enjoy a steady growth of cash flow coming into my pocket that was tax advantaged over decades. And I think that the challenge with a lot of people coming into the business that haven't been through these downturns is they think in one, two, three, and five-year chunks. I don't even think in 10-year chunks anymore. I actually think out 20, 30 years from now because you know, we're doing so well with the current portfolio that there is absolutely no reason in the world to take any risk in the short term that's not going to give us 
you know, great protection of capital and incremental upside in what we already have. And I think that the mindset when you have a lot to lose is much different than the mindset you have when you're coming in. And honestly, you don't have much to lose and you don't see the downside because you don't feel like there's anything off of your back if something goes wrong, right? Especially if you're a syndicator and you're not putting a lot of your own money into these deals, then there's even less reason to be concerned about investors' capital. Yeah, I think you see the whole, there's a lot to lose in just in business in general, where you know the founder who's scrappy and has essentially nothing to lose is willing to take a lot more chances. But once you build something substantial, uh, your decision-making changes and it becomes much more conservative and growth slows as a result. But you have a lot more to lose, like you said. What was the trigger? You mentioned that you realized it was time to sell anything you didn't want to hold for 10 years. What made you realize that? You know, we started to see, you know, the expenses starting to creep up on a lot of the properties that we had that were that were aging. And we started to see it being a lot harder to continue to get the price rent increases that we got in the earlier years. Like to go back in time, like if I take you to like 2006 and 7, when I first bought a multifamily property in Dallas, Texas, I bought a 1959 or 1960 vintage property, 50 units. And it had one and two bedroom units. The one bedrooms were, were renting for about 550 bucks a month. All bills paid, mind you. The two bedrooms were renting for 650 bucks a month, all bills paid. That was back in 2007, 2008. Now, if you look at the wages for the person that was living at that property, they pretty much haven't gone up if you account for inflation. They've, they've been stagnant, right? But if that same person was to try to rent that same unit in today's market, they would be spending approximately a thousand to eleven hundred bucks for that two bedroom, two bath unit, and probably eight hundred and fifty to nine hundred and fifty bucks for that one bedroom. Same unit, nothing's changed. Think about it. Their wages haven't really kept up with inflation, but now the cost of living is so outrageously high for the same person that they physically, even if you were to renovate that property to the nines in today's market, they physically cannot pay another doubling of that rent. It's just, it's not possible. So if you're a person that's buying that deal today and paying, you know, let's say I paid for that deal in 2007, I paid like $26,000 a unit, right? And I thought I was buying at the peak of the market back then. That same person that buys a deal today is probably going to, you know, now that let's say we have a 25% decrease on what it used to sell for. So maybe they can pick it up for a hundred thousand, maybe $90,000 on a good day in that particular market. They're still having to factor in outrageously large rent increases with a lot of renovations to justify that investment on that 1960s product. I would tell you that I don't feel in this market that there's that much of an upward ceiling on the rental growth on top of the fact that we have expenses going up like gangbusters. And so, you know, it makes it very difficult in today's market to justify that type of an investment. Interesting. Do you feel like some of the sponsors that were like having to do deals in 2021, 2022, do you feel like part of that is based on how they built their like their business, their operating model? I mean, I've heard, I, I don't, know the inner workings of how all of this works but i know that there's like different philosophies on 
what fees do I charge to pay my team? And I've got to do deals to pay my team. Was any of that going on too? Like what? 150% yes. And you nailed it. Look, if you want to be a volume-based syndication shop where you are transacting, you know, five to 10 deals every year, in some cases, a lot more, you've got to have a huge amount of heads to be able to do all the transacting. I mean, there is a lot of heavy lifting that goes along with the acquisition of each deal, the disposition of each deal, the refinancing of each deal, the asset management of each deal. And the more deals that you're taking on per year, it exponentially increases that that head count, that load. Now, when you're a volume syndicator and you've got this load, that load is not coming for free. You've got to pay these people every year. You've got to keep the light bills on at your office. You've got to pay all these expenses for these employees that it's costing you, you know, medical, all that good stuff. You get to the point where you have to transact to be able to pay the light bill. And so it is absolutely the case when you get down to the point where you have a decision to make on whether you're going to acquire a very, you know, could be a good deal, could be a, I shouldn't do this deal. Which way do you think you're going to go when you have all these bills to pay and you're a massively growing syndication company? It's just a no brainer. I mean, from our perspective as what I would call, what I call myself a boutique uh, investor slash syndicator, we've always ran extremely lean. In fact, you know, really there's only two people at the company that are on the payroll of the syndication company, which is myself and my main business partner. And it's intentionally so because we don't have a big payroll to cover all these, these things that other volume syndicators do. We can decide, hey, we're going to sit out the market for the next three years. And it's not going to change anything in terms of my lifestyle, my partner's lifestyle, or anything like that. So we have a lot more flexibility when it comes to being able to weather the storm and not do a deal because we have to pay a light bill. It's a very important thing for a regular investor or LP to understand because unless you're in this business and syndication business, you'll never really get what I'm telling you because it's you see the the bright lights and the flashy presentations about this deal that somebody's buying, this big syndication company. And you're like, man, how can this go wrong? You don't see behind the scenes the, the immense amount of, of load that it takes to keep the light bills on at that company. So you don't know if that deal is really, they're doing it because they like that deal or because they got to do that deal, right? It's a, it's a very important point for people to understand. So sponsors that have like lower overhead, how can you identify that? How do they kind of like walk and talk and present? I don't even know if I'm really asking the right question, but just how can you tell the difference between the sponsor that is very cognizant about overhead versus the sponsor that has to do deals to maintain their overhead? I mean, the first thing you can do is you can look at what they're charging you for the fees, right? Normally, if you have a volume syndication company that's doing a lot of stuff, they're going to be on probably on the richer side for like things like acquisition and disposition fees, asset management fees. If they're vertically integrated, you got to look at their management fees as property management fees as well. And you can get a feel for whether they're charging you what we would determine to be fair rates or whether they're pretty rich rates. If they're really rich rates, I think that would tell you that they need extra acquisition fees, extra fees to be able to justify the load that they have on the property. And, and so like with our company, 
we're very inexpensive when it comes to fees. We're like a one, one, one. So we charge like 1% acquisition, 1% disposition, 1% asset management fee, and, and that's it. Um, and so that's and actually we, really sorry to cut you off. But that is like super reasonable compared to what I've seen floating around real estate Twitter. Uh, right. These guys get hands on different operating agreements and it's crazy. We, and and let, me, and let me tell you why we do that, because we're not in the business of giving away our work because we're great at what we do. But the way we look at it is simple, Brandon. We're taking a nice chunk of the sponsorship interest in that deal for doing all the work. We care more about that than we care about fees because believe me, fees go away after you know one year. They, they get paid off in the form of, of salaries or whatever else that we have to do, right? But that long-term equity interest and that long-term cash flow that stays for good. And so from us and from our perspective, we don't really care about fees because we want to get rich over the long run, not make a bunch of money in the short run. That that means nothing to us as people that have already made a whole lot of money, right? I mean, we want to preserve capital and just keep it going a little bit more every year. And that's really the mindset that you have to get inside of to understand whether this person is really looking out for your best interest or not. It's got to be hard for sponsors to like commit to that being just fiscally responsible there and just not getting addicted to the fees and the hamster wheel that it create. Cause I imagine it's really hard to step off once you step on. It completely is. And I think that you have to understand that everybody has to determine this is more of a philosophical thing, right? You got to determine what you want your life to be about. Right. So when my, my business partner and I started this company, we never really wanted to be a multi-billion dollar syndication company. It wasn't our intention because we already were making a lot of money with our previous careers. We actually were really passionate about real estate and we just wanted to make enough to feel like we were being fulfilled and doing whatever we wanted to do, right? Now we've made a whole lot of money, but what really meant more to us was the quality of life that we had in addition to you know, the, the fulfilling the passion of what we do with our investors and what we do with our properties. And so you know, we have intentionally not grown as big as we could have a lot of times because we appreciated being home with our families at certain times of the night. We appreciated not having to, you know, head off to on a moment's notice to fly to, you know, two or three different states because we've got assets in, you know, across the nation, right? So, you know, in some sense, I think this is also a choice of how you want to live your life and how you want to grow your business. And you have to do it to the extent that you control the way your business is going, because ultimately, if you don't control it, it's going to control you. And that's that's not a situation I want to be in. Now, that makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of people sometimes, um, from my perspective, from what I've been seeing recently, take too much of a short-term view. So I like how you guys broke down the longer-term view um, and how important that is just to sometimes get base hits and not swing for the fences. If not, you might end up in a situation that we just talked about here today on the podcast. So in closing, would you be able to take a few seconds to give us an idea of how LPs could better vet future sponsors going forward. I want to touch on one point that JC had um, previous in terms of, uh, I think Brandon asked the question around the what experienced sponsors were doing. And one thing we did not touch on was the cap rate compression across classes. And so, you know, a class A deal when I started was maybe, let's say a 5% cap rate. And then a B deal was a 7% cap rate. And then a C deal was 9% cap rate. And that spread was always there for a reason, right? The quality asset, the tenant base, all that. But then what happened in 21 and 22 is if your loan is essentially the same, people were paying the same cap rate for all classes. 
So even though experienced sponsors were still in the market buying A-class deals, they were paying a four cap, but then somebody who was relatively newer, maybe were paying four and a half on a B deal. And then maybe someone who was even newer was buying a C deal at 475. So that cap rate compression happened. And now what we're seeing is it is expanding back out. And so A deals are at five and then B deals, maybe 575, but then C deals, they might go to 675, 7%. And what happens is if you plug in your NOI divided by that cap rate, essentially all your equity is wiped out when that cap rate expands. And so that is what people are going through right now. Um, all right. All right, Thomas, now I'll get to your question. In terms of vetting sponsors for LPs, I mean, we get this question all the time. There are a million ways to meet sponsors nowadays, uh, whether it's podcasts, whether it's conferences, whether it's uh, however you want to meet them. What you have to do is figure out sort of what their investment criteria is. And then what I would do is probably look at their past deals and compare their historical performance to their pro formas. And then I am more conservative. So I'm more singles and doubles on general partners and deals. So majority of the deals that I'm investing in typically just have Fannie Freddie loans at five, seven, 10 years fixed. And so it was harder to invest in 21 and 22, but right now it is a lot easier to invest because majority of the deals have that. It's just that they're having to raise 40% of the equity right now to put down. And so that is the challenge for a new general partner right now is you're having to go out and raise significantly more equity and you are competing not against other syndicators, right? Because in 21 and 22, the hard thing was that there was literally 30 deals raising money at the same time. But right now, there's only one or two deals that are raising money at a time, but you're competing versus the bank because the bank is giving them 5%. And so now that is your competition. If your cash on cash is not above 5%, then they're going to say, well, I'm just going to go sit, put my money in a CD. So it's a different world out there. You know, I would definitely get recommendations, referrals from other limited partners, and then also, you know, figure out your investment criteria. I sort of put together like an investment philosophy that uh, sort of is tweaked, but it's essentially a list of like 20, 25 things that I go through in my head and I check the box. And if it hits 90% of them, then I'm ready to go and I'm ready to invest. No, great insights. Great insights. So thank you, JC. Thank you, James, for coming on the show today. I uh, really uh, enjoyed the insights. I'm sure everybody out there listening to this podcast will as well. And uh, thanks again for coming on. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients, and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.